0: Today, I welcome Dr. Raynard Kington, Head of School at Phillips Academy Andover in the USA. In part two of this episode, I discuss the importance of mentors, taking risks and opportunities, as well as balancing the scales of social justice and equity. Do you feel that that transition between school and college, that needs to be revisited to be more fit for purpose and relevant?
1: Yes, I do. And let me just add, I know that a lot of religious colleges and universities still talk about character, but they're a minority, and even they have toned down that a fair amount. But yes, I do think, I think sometimes we get this transition wrong. And I'm not sure who's to blame. <laughs> you know, you know, I and or even whether it's worth exploring who's to blame. But I do worry that the whole process of going from a high school to college has become so complicated and so anxiety provoking for so many, for families, for students. And I know that when I say that, I'm referring to a tiny slice of the world. We're talking about the vast majority of kids go to public institutions, community colleges, and, you know, they are not at a high school like Andover, and they don't go to the colleges where the vast majority of our kids go. So I know that we're in a tiny slice. But I think it's a slice that matters. It's a slice that has disproportionate power on how our society runs. So I still think it matters. But I never kid myself into thinking that our problems are the problems of the vast majority of kids. But in our world, there is this just this extraordinary anxiety. And I understand it. You know, it's, it's understandable. We want what's best for our children. We want pathways that will lead to what we think of as their success. So that's entirely understandable. But I do think what's sometimes lost in the game is the understanding, a recognition that, of why we do any of this. And it's about learning. (laughs) I mean, it's about learning. That's it, learning about our world and about the human experience and about, it's about learning. And I think we, too often, that gets lost in the shuffle we talk about. Careers and prestige and quality of colleges. And, you know, we talk about all sorts of stuff, jobs. We don't talk that much about the purpose. And, you know, I think what the internet and access to sort of the upside of the internet is that it sort of forces us to think more about learning good and bad, sort of like what do we really want? This notion that the stackable credentials, for example, instead of degrees, but online credentials and all of that. One stream underlying that is about learning and less about how you learn and you know what the name of the school is and forcing a more narrow discussion about learning. A lot of schools talk about the love of learning, right? We want to
0: inculcate a lifelong love of learning, which I completely get. And I think everybody on the planet has learned something new off YouTube, right? And it's a phenomenal place, but there's also a lot of noise because they're not really that regulated in terms of content and everything else. And so, again, there's this disproportionate skill that we don't have whereby, how do we access stuff that's relevant? How do we teach our kids to mine the right knowledge? A lot of the time, we believe what we see because it's been shoved down a platform. We're so busy because we've got a dopamine hit going through every single channel that's being hit at me. And we make the wrong decisions, We perceive it to be okay, or we make decisions based on, I call it by proxy because you know my friend or my friend's friend may have made the wrong decision, but because I'm connected to them, it looks credible. And so we buy into this lots of content and I call it content shock. Where we're almost inundated with far too much data and information. We're really poor at showing kids, particularly and teens, Actually, how to find and be critical about the knowledge that is in front of them or the information to turn it into knowledge. That to me is, I think, a critical point that people want because it doesn't matter. We can apply ourselves to any industry and allow you know, a young man or a woman to grow.
1: One advantage of my grip at is you sort of stepping in and out of different worlds. So I'm a member of the National Academy of Medicine and I chaired a committee of the National Academy of Medicine to begin to start thinking about how to sort of provide information to consumers about the quality of medical information on YouTube, the principles, and how you would ultimately get to a point where you could sort of label sources as more credible or not. It was a fascinating conversation. A paper came out of it that's now actually being used, about to be applied nationally and internationally to sort of start thinking about this issue of information, internet accessible information about medical care and about medicine and how to help people sort of manage and deal with the extraordinary amount of information out there that's just garbage. (laughs) That's like, has no scientific validity whatsoever. But, you know, it was hard actually having that conversation. It really was quite hard to sort of figure out. We came up with some broad principles and indications, and then another group is taking it from there. You know, you're absolutely right. And that's just one tiny little slice of what's on the internet. so But I think this gets back to sort of our core reason for being and particularly what's embedded within a liberal education, small l liberal education. And that is the sort of teaching how to think and how to assess information and how to sort of discern and understand and question. And We're all born
0: original, so why live your life as a copy? You know, we've got to teach our kids to stand on their own two feet and to think. But sometimes the, the system, the conveyor belt from education is not actually designed well enough to enable them to do that. Because, again, we're stuck in the machine that says, I have to do this. I have to pass that. I have to get this level to get into my next, you know, to unlock the next level of my education. And that's where the aspiration is. You know, I want a college degree.
1: But, you know, I think, you know, so I'm reading an interesting book. Um, by a former head of Andover called The Students Are Watching by uh, Theodore Sizer and Nancy Faust Sizer, husband and wife. He was the uh, the dean of the Graduate School of Education at Harvard and then became the head of school here at Andover. He and his wife were both a lot of experience in high schools and teaching. One thing the book is about is how one of the ways that we influence students is by how we operate as institutions and how that Sort of sends messages to students about our values and what we think is important. It's a great book because this idea that before you sort of as much as you talk about telling students what is sort of sort of right and wrong or how to go about discerning right and wrong, you also show them by how you work as an institution. I'll give you one example. We're rewriting our student conduct coding, sort of shifting the structure of our conduct system from a more punitive model to a more restorative model. We're just having to rewrite our what's called the blue book, which has all the rules and everything in it. And there was a great line in it. And I don't mean to criticize people who wrote this line. Let me just say that right now. (laughs) But there was a line in it that said, basically, um, we reserve the right to change the policy whenever we want. Many of these similar documents have a often written by a lawyer, God bless our lawyers, they help us do wonderful things. But those statements that they put in there are often for just remember, we can change this. And we decided to rewrite that sentence. And now we say sort of some version of we're constantly trying to get better. And if we think we can change the rules to get better, we'll change the rules to get better. <laughs> like, you know, but it's not like we're just arbitrarily changing the rules. Based on what
0: if someone's, you know, stepped over the boundary or the line in which you kind of interpret it. And by the way, no, right, that's it. We're changing it now.
1: But just that shift of thinking that we weren't communicating why we might change. It was an aha moment for me when I thought, like, why do we say that? And I know there are legal reasons, but we should be telling students that we're doing the same thing we hope they do, which is think about. What we think about ourselves as an institution and how we operate as an institution, what our values are, and how that our values and mission are reflected in our decisions and our policies. And we should think about how we function as an institution and model that difficult dance with, you know, this tension between staying the same, especially when you've been around almost 250 years, and adapting to a changing world. And especially when you're a knowledge institution and sort of and that just talk about that tension and how complicated it is. And, and we keep trying to get it right. And we may get it wrong sometimes. We may have policies that are end up being not smart policies. And then we hope that we're at least constantly thinking about our policies and practices and thinking about how we can make them better, which ones we need to keep and which ones maybe we need to evolve. Because you know, it was not that long ago when it would have been unthinkable to have me in this job.
0: With this generation that we're guiding and teaching, you know, they know nothing but being adaptable. You know, change is constant for them, you know, more so than any other generation. So, you know, if we are going to be those role models, we have to model it. And, you know, we have to change the way. Because it doesn't mean you're changing your history or your heritage. Those are things that stay true. I was really taken by, you again, you you're repeating about living into your mission and your values. I do find that schools just don't do this very well, that, you know, we talk about success a lot and every school has exactly the same success It's margins. You talk about this thin layer and actually all we ever talk about is what layer are we in? Every school can talk about academic success, science success, sporting success, every type of success. But what we're very poor at and actually what I do in my other bit running this agency is all about the story. How do we measure? How do we actually get schools to live into it? Because that's what makes you fundamentally different than any other school on the planet. You know, it's not the history, it's not the grounds, it's it's you, the place, the things you do, the purpose. But we're very bad at living into it because once you have a belief system, you've got to show it. Like we're living into this right now, this value, and decisions are grounded on this mission. You know, we're not going over here just because it sounds good. It doesn't actually sit well with our mission, so why are we doing it?
1: And it's hard to do this, hard to be a thinking human, just as it's hard to rethink things that you think you figured out <laughs> when you get information that suggests that you didn't figure it out perhaps as well as you might have. We are the same as an institution. We're an institution made up of humans. We should be constantly trying to get better and recognizing when we make mistakes. God knows we have a committee on challenging histories, and we have a lot of history, and we're looking back and developing principles about how we might rethink some of our historical ties. As much as that is a challenge for a lot of us and controversial in many ways. I really think it's important that we, again, sort of model what we want our students to do. And that is to sort of think and be open to reconsidering and having a sense of what their core values are and up until the day they die. You want it to be like forever, you know, that, that particularly sort of don't think of blocks of time like these four years of high school and these four years of college that we need to sort of think of this sort of this arc, and that we're just a little piece of that arc of their lives. And we're hoping that it'll be that we've sort of helped them figure out how the rest of the arc will go. It's going to be, you should be reconsidering and thinking and engaging for the rest of your life. When I was at Grinnell, I was invited early on. This is one of my favorite stories, and you probably tell it too much. I was invited to speak. To the graduating senior leaders at a little old town high school in Montezuma, Iowa. It was the county seat of our county. I drove there and sort of talked about being president and sort of, you know, and this was a little town in Iowa. At some point, I noted that my spouse is Greek American and we spent a lot of time on the island of Crete. And I just come back from Crete. And that year I had been walking down a street and that I'd walked down before many times. And I looked up finally and saw Arabic in stone over one of the doors. And it just drove home to me, yeah, this was part of the Ottoman Empire <laughs> like for, for a long time. It was a part of that. there are minarets and sort of like, but it just clicked. And I thought, you know, I know almost nothing about the Ottoman Empire. It's not taught that much. We sort of, I probably got a page in some world history book about the Ottoman Empire. So I said, you know, yeah, I started to read a little bit more about the Ottoman Empire, both fiction and nonfiction to try to get a sense. And then I moved on to the next topic. But that was mentioned in the letter that the students wrote later on. They said, you know, we thought that was interesting that this college president like decided that he didn't know anything about something and was gonna read on his own, (laughs) was gonna read about this thing that he didn't watch movies or whatever, just was gonna try to learn more. That struck me that that's what they remembered. And that's great. I thought, wow, that was worth the trip. There's always new things to learn. I mean, I'm learning new
0: things off my kids all the time. Tell you an interesting connection that uh, you mentioned the Ottoman Empire. Actually, my best man that I was at school with is actually the great-great-grandson direct in line to the exiled sultan of Turkey, the last king of Turkey. And his sister, who was, you know, the great-great-granddaughter of it, has just written a book on it trying to do a modern novel of it so yeah i mean i've kind of grown up having to learn all about that
1: we don't talk about it much in western education it's they controlled a lot of europe i mean massively yeah they were massively powerful for hundreds of years it was like 400 years it wasn't like a little chunk of time and they were in charge
0: i hope you're enjoying the inspiring schools podcast we're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. You have met some incredible people on your pathway to Andover. What leaders or mentors inspired you along
1: the way? What's been hard for me is that there haven't been people who have had careers like me, which was really hard. That made it hard and interesting. So for me, I had a couple of mentors I was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. And there was a a guy there named Samuel Martin, who was a brilliant re-scientist and physician. He had been chair of the Department of Medicine at Duke. He was a god, a grand old doctor, you know, one of these like, but he was so open-minded. And he would like, you could tell him almost anything. You could say, okay, I want to become like, you know, I want to figure out how to like do medicine on airplanes. And he would go, great. Okay, let me figure out how I can help you. <laughs> like You know, you could just, he had a huge influence on me just because he had this sort of open mind. He just, when I interviewed with him before I was selected, we were in the interview and he he said something really interesting. He said to me, we were talking about race and medicine. And I don't know how we got there. And he said something about how he had trained quite a few positions of color, but he said he was disappointed that so few of them went back to their communities. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to let this slide. (laughs) I called him out. I said, you know, do you ever say that to white trainees? Do they go back to their communities? I mean, what are you talking about? I mean, and what's my community? My community is your community. It's like the same world as your community. What are you talking about? And to his credit, he stopped and said, you know, you're right. Let me think about that. And then we went on. It was like He's the type who would say, yeah, I, yeah, that is kind of weird. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do that. Let me. Maybe, maybe I need to articulate it in a more nuanced way. So I've had a few people like that in my career that even though they didn't spend years and years together, and he didn't get on the phone and call them whenever I was making a decision, but he just was this a model of thinking and openness. And for me, having a very nontraditional career, that was important to sort of have these people periodically who would say, OK, what do you want to do? Who were mentors who didn't, in essence, want to reproduce themselves, which is the way most many mentors are. They really want to tell you how to become what they have become. And that was not what I wanted or needed. And at several points in my career, I had people who said, OK, w- what do you want to do? And I might not understand it, but God bless. Let me figure out a to, way to help you. That was important.
0: And you've talked a lot about the past, um, uh, going back to your roots and what influenced you. And obviously, there's been lots of barriers as you've had to go through your career. And obviously, we're at a massively polarized point in American history, which is difficult. Do you find your role a lot more responsible for the outcomes of this polarization and getting it right? Because, you know, DI is really talked about as a massive agenda point in all schools, do you feel like you have to be the flag bearer for all of these things, or is it just business as usual? This is this is me being me.
1: It would be irresponsible of me, no matter what my background, not to sort of understand that the challenge of diversity is one of the challenges of our time. That <laughs> anyone who isn't like thinking about it sort of isn't paying attention. I also, say that being African American, being the son of an immigrant, being openly gay, you know. I'm constantly sort of thinking, okay, do I have something unique to say here? And, you know, or like, why did that just happen? (laughs) Did that happen because of who I am or because of who I am? Yes, it sort of adds, I think Toni Morrison talked about this, the gaze. It's one of the, actually, I think at its best is right, word, at its most helpful, it forces you to sort of be a little bit more sensitive to how you're viewed by others, you know, What box are they putting me into now in terms of this conversation?
0: Got to avoid the boxes. Isn't that the point? I mean, how many more letters can we add and symbols to the end of LGBTQ? It's just become surely there's no label. We're just different. We should be celebrated for being different and being unique.
1: But we can't be naive. We can't be naive. We can't be naive about the world as it is. And the world as it is, is neutral about those things. (laughs) You know, I I just spent 10 years in small town, Iowa, black, openly gay, you know, president and I was at the intersection of these worlds. And so while it is true that we don't want boxes, we also have to realize, we have to be realistic about the world as it is. A colleague, someone I, admire a great deal was at a board meeting and this issue of freedom of speech came up, you know, and sort of everyone saying, oh, we really want our students to learn how to be engaged with difficult ideas and, you know, liberal thought framework and and all that was great. She stopped the conversation with a comment that I've never forgotten. She said, okay, yes, I absolutely believe in free speech. Let's not kid ourselves into believing that the burden of that free speech falls evenly across all students. It does not. Often we're talking about now about free speech. It's often sort of things that are sort of far right and are often perceived of as anti uh, people of color and openly gay people, et cetera. She said, you know, when those speakers come to campus, everyone's not going to experience those speakers evenly. Even if they fully support bringing them, we have to be attentive to that. And, our, and we have to think about how we can support those who are disproportionately impacted by that conversation. Because you can value the principle of free speech and also recognize that, you know, it's complicated and not evenly distributed, the burden of that free speech. And it's always going to be there. It just has to be
0: constantly, not on the agenda, but because I feel that that's the wrong word for it. But a lot of schools set up all these committees and these sub-working steering groups. And is it just now? Because this is when we're talking about it the most. Or is this actually something that just needs to be baked in? It just needs to be part of the culture of an organization. At Grinnell College, you started the Innovator for Social Justice Prize. Have you created anything similar at Andover? And what was it?
1: I haven't created anything similar here. We have a lot of really interesting people who come to campus and we have for years we have access to people who who will answer our invitations and say yes just because of the prominence of the institution it was filling a different need here I'm more thinking about how do we use these extraordinary resources so you know the Addison Gallery of American Art is one of the world's best collections of American art. And it's part of our school. It's part of a high school, the Edison Gallery. The Peabody Institute of of Archaeology um, used to be a museum. Now it's more of an institute. We just finished looking at all the census of all the collection. 600,000 items in an archaeological collection at a high school. Some of the oldest pieces of North American archaeology in our collection. So we have, I think, more here, I think about, okay, how can we use these extraordinary resources and the sort of intellectual reservoir here with our faculty and our students and these incredible collections, how can we use them to make real these values that we put forth, including that we are a private school with a public purpose. One of the motto is non-sibi, not for self. In our original document, constitution from 1778, there was a statement that we basically want boys of requisite skill from youth from every quarter. That was a principle. So what I do here has to be reflect the unique challenges and resources of this institution. And I think I did that at Grinnell and I'm learning how to do it here. This is in a phenomenal place. I mean, it's just, it's unreal. <laughs> how much history. We have you know, letters in my house that I live in. I have you know, a chair that George Washington sat in and a desk that he wrote on. I mean, in my house, it's a phenomenal institution. And that's part of that is figuring out how to steward that resource. And that's what we think about as a community, that we, we aren't just a high school. We're this center of learning and history and knowledge and culture. And it's not just in the past. We're that now what we do matters often in the bigger world. And so with those resources come this burden of responsibility.
0: Thanks ever so much for taking the time. I've thoroughly enjoyed our session together. When I'm coming out to the States, I'll let you know I'd love to come and have a walk around. And also I want to I kind of want to see your writing room, to be honest. I want to see that place, but I'll give you advance warning and thanks ever so much and good luck for the rest of this term. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.